Yeah, there was my, I was melting. Thank you, Mr. John. Hi, everybody. Grab a Bible. We're going to Exodus chapter 12 this morning. We're starting a new series called All Things New. We're looking at different dimensions. Thank you so much, Mr. John. We're looking at different dimensions of atonement. Atonement is a big, fancy theological word that speaks of God bringing back into alignment what had been fractured or bringing back into relationship what had been estranged or bringing back into union what had been broken. And atonement is is one of the words uh, in the scriptures that describes what it is that Jesus did when he died for us and rose again. And so to prepare ourselves for Good Friday and Easter, we want to look at different aspects of atonement. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to spend about 15 minutes wandering the hinterlands of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. For those of you new to the Bible, you this this will be very interesting or not for you, uh, but don't worry, we will go to the New Testament where we recognize the words and the right answer to every question is, there you go, Exodus chapter 12. Now, the, the nation of Israel has found itself enslaved to Egypt for over 400 years, and God has raised up a deliverer in the form of Moses, and Moses goes to Pharaoh, and you know very famously, let my people go. Uh, so that they can worship the Lord God in the wilderness. Pharaoh refuses and thus begins a series of plagues against the Egyptians. Now, the plagues, when we read them, just seem really random, whether it's frogs or the Nile turns red as blood or uh, darkness. What's fascinating is that some believe that what's going on in the plagues is that they each target a specific Egyptian deity. So for instance, the sun god Ra was the highest god in their pantheon, and every morning he would rise and defeat the the demon of darkness. And so when God blots out the sun for three days, he is manifesting his power over the highest god of the Egyptian pantheon. There was a frog-headed goddess uh, that that when God multiplies frogs is showing kind of hit, the Lord is in control over frogs, not this goddess. There was a God that governed the Nile River and when the Nile turns red as blood, it was like that God died. I mean, there were the, there's kind of this epic imagery behind the plagues. And what's interesting is the first nine plagues, God distinguished between the Egyptians and the Israelites. In other words, he just if, if, there were, if there was hail, it would just be on the Egyptians. The Israelites would be left alone. The Israelites had to do nothing to be immune from the first nine plagues. But that changed on plague number 10. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month for you is to be the first month, the first month of your year. So what was about to happen was so momentous, your entire calendar would be built around it. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And then he gives instructions about if your household's too small. Jump down to verse five. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You can take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them for four days until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames uh, where they eat the lambs. Now, and then there are instructions given about how you prepare the lamb and to eat it. Jump down to verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt. 
and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the what? Gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So what is this event called? Passover. And here's the idea. For the first nine plagues, Israel didn't have to do anything to be immune from them. But on the tenth plague, God was going to make no distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites unless the Israelites took the lamb and took the blood of the lamb and anointed their door frames. And so literally, if they did not do that, would the firstborn of the Israelites have died? Absolutely. This was the only plague where Israel had to do something to be immune from it. So the point, Mondo, if you fire up the sweet telestrator. Now, if you've not been exposed to the telestrator before, this is inspired by John Madden, Mike Fratello, other miscellaneous sorts. Now, Egypt, or excuse me, Israel, the first night. Oh, now come on, Mondo. Something's going wrong here. There's something happening wrong. Mondo. There we go. That was close. That was close. See, Mondo, you don't know Mondo, but Mondo knows you. Now, the night of the 10th plague, Israel had two problems. First, they were enslaved, right? They were still enslaved to Pharaoh, very physically. Secondly, they were now under the wrath, whoa, and judgment of God. Okay, so they had two problems. First problem, they were enslaved. Second problem, God was bringing judgment on all of Egypt, but God provided a way out so that they could be passed over that wrath and judgment on the gods of Egypt. Are you with me so far? Okay, that is thread number one. Okay, we're going to go to two more threads and then start weaving them together. Go if you would to the book, or same book, uh, chapter 25, Exodus 25. Do I hear 26? Exodus 25. God delivers his people out of slavery. He takes them to a mountain, Sinai where we suggested last week that he weds them. And that one, that one uh, shape of the Ten Commandments is it's actually a ketubah, a bridal contract between God and his people. You had to be here last week to make sense of that one. But the idea is that God now is instructing the people he has redeemed about what it means to live together in community. And so he instructs them to build something called the tabernacle, a mobile sanctuary, and as a part of that tabernacle, there was very famously something called the Ark of the Covenant, the Indiana Jones discovered, right? Which really happened. <laughs> I'm sure it looked just like that, too. That's funny. Thank you, Mondo. Now, Exodus 25, verse 17. God gives instructions very specifically about how to build this ark. And he says, verse 17, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. We all know how long that is, right? This phrase, atonement cover, is the phrase I want you to zero in on. It's more than just a lid. The atonement cover it's called the 
Yom Kippur. Kippur-et is what it was called. The Kippur-et. Kippur uh, means atonement. In fact, um, Yom Kippur, the very famous day of atonement, Yom is day, uh, Kippur means atonement. And so the atonement cover was the space between the angels that you saw up on the screen where literally God's manifest presence dwelt. Something at the Old Testament called his Shekinah glory. Dwelt there and he would meet with Moses face to face. So this tabernacle became uh, known as the tent of meeting. It was the place where atonement would be made. It was way, way more than just a lid. In fact, it was called the invisible throne of God. And so whenever you read about God being enthroned, this was where it was thought that he would sit, metaphorically speaking, that his presence would dwell in that spot. It was literally the holiest place in all of Israel was this atonement cover, not just a lid, but it was like the seat of God. Now, go if you would to the book of Leviticus. We were all there this morning uh, in preparation. Flip over to Leviticus 16, because in Leviticus we read about something called the Day of Atonement. One day a year, the high priest of Israel would enter into the place called the Most Holy Place. The Most Holy Place was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And, he, and the high priest would make atonement first for himself and his family, and then for all of Israel. Now, if you're a bit lost on this, you are not alone, I am sure. Relevance is about 20 minutes away. Now, Leviticus 16, verse 15. These are the instructions for the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Verse 15, the high priest shall then slaughter the goat. There were two goats involved. Slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as you did for the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and the rebellion of the Israelites. So, here's the image. God sees, his people have two issues, slavery and his wrath and judgment on the gods of Egypt. He gives them a way out involving a Passover lamb and blood that rescues them from slavery and allows the wrath of God to pass over them. Would you agree? He then institutes a Passover ceremony that yearly is to be uh, uh, celebrated. And then he also institutes something called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where this atonement cover that we read about in Exodus 25 would be sprinkled with blood and purified and the sins of Israel would be dealt with for another year. This was central to the imagination of the Israelites and how God was both their judge and their redeemer at the same time. He wasn't just creator, but he was judge and redeemer. And all wrapped up into that is the idea of sacrifice, wrath, and atonement cover. Okay, are you with me so far? He asked with fear and trembling. Okay, that was moderately unimpressive. Now, go if you would to the book of Ephesians and everybody took a big sigh of relief. Because in Ephesians, we know the words and the right answer is Jesus. Okay, now, we want to develop one other thread before we kind of weave these all together into a tapestry of such amazement that you will leave here and you will sing the praises of Jesus. That was a bit of an overpromise. Now, Ephesians chapter 2. 
I'm in a good mood today, brothers and sisters. Clearly only one of us is. And I am grateful that you are here. It is winter out there. It is so frigid. I mean, in the 50s, it's just so, I don't know how we manage. It's just so freezing in the 50s. It's time for Doppler Stormwatch 8 million HD because we may get a quarter inch of rain, brothers and sisters. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is writing to a church, and in this section he's describing what was true of them before they met this Jesus. As for you, he writes... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. I know, it's painful. I know. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of Oh, boy, said with such great joy. Mondo, fire up my poor handwriting. So what is Paul saying? Just like the ancient Israelites, we have the exact same problems. We are enslaved. And that enslavement is to our desires, which are totally in cravings that are totally out of control, and to the prince of the power of the air, whom the, the scriptures call the Satan, the adversary, a being of power that is not God's equal, but certainly is God's opposite. And that literally you and I are born into rebellion with wills that are bent towards what's bad. Right? Does anybody have to teach their children to be selfish? Right? Does anyone say to their children, would you stop sharing? Nobody says this, right? We have to teach them to be grateful. We have to teach them to play well with others. And I mean, and you know, we all grow out of that, right? I mean, by the time we're our sophisticated age. So, so there's a sense in which anytime you, you turn on your computer or the television, there is proof of the darkness that resides in humanity. And so Paul simply says, listen, apart from this Jesus, we're all enslaved to not only the cravings and desires of our bodies, but even beyond that to this being that holds uh, the fallen creation in its power. Secondly, and because that we're not just recipients of evil, but we provoke evil around us and through us and in us, that we are by nature objects of wrath. Now, could there be a less popular word in the Christian vocabulary than wrath? So I want to spend just a couple minutes, give me a few moments of excursus on this idea of wrath for a moment. Because when I hear the word wrath, this is what I think of. Mondo, fire up the Far Side cartoon. This is God at his computer... And there's some poor, normal schlep kind of walking around, and there's a piano with a rope, and God has his finger. I don't know if you can read it, but the button says, smite. <laughs> and whenever I hear God's wrath, don't we all kind of have this image? Not literally, but we kind of have the image of a God who just, at any moment, could do something kind of wacky. And, and if you've been a follower of Jesus... Um, there, there are the passages in the Bible where we feel like we got to kind of apologize. You know, I'm sorry, he was a little bit angry in the Old Testament, but when Jesus comes, he's really loving and nice. First impressions aren't last impressions, so just give him a shot. 
You know, we kind of feel that way. So I want to spend a little time on God's wrath. Now, first, God's wrath is different than human wrath. And for that, we can be very thankful. Human wrath. We have phrases like fly off the handle or enraged. Like human wrath uh, is disproportionate usually to the offense. It's irrational. It's undisciplined. It's arbitrary. It's malicious. It's capricious. It's totally designed to punish, right? And, and God's wrath in the scriptures is spoken of as something that is every bit as real as God's love, but he is slow to wrath. His wrath can be turned aside. His wrath isn't permanent. Now, this is really important that you understand. God's wrath is not an essential part of his character. His character, righteous, goodness, holiness, love, wrath is the response of that kind of being to anything that's evil. So when sin goes away, will God be wrathful? No. Before sin entered the world, was he wrathful? No. So it's not an essential part of his character. It is not what he is, but it's based on who he is. In other words, because he is holy and loving and good, he is wrathful towards sin. Wrath is his unrelenting, uncompromising, and utterly consistent antagonism towards evil in all of its forms. That's what his wrath is. His utter and pure and just and holy opposition to sin. And by sin, we mean anything that falls short. Now that still doesn't make it too palatable for us. I understand this. But I want you to understand that there's this sense that God fundamentally in his own nature is angry. And that's not, that's not essential to who he is. One last piece of disclaiming before we dive in. My wife and I have two fundamental arguments. I know this will shock you. We do not have a perfect marriage. We argue about the temperature of our home. And I tell her, get some body fat, girl. Number two, we argue about who makes, after the kids go down about 8.30, who makes the television choices in our household? Now, five and a half months of the year, I watch football, which we can all agree glorifies God and builds character. <laughs> I mean, that just goes without saying. The rest of the year, my wife watches the cruddiest, dumbest stuff. Biggest loser. I'm like, really, honey? Really? Really? Why don't you just submit my name, why don't you, next time? Huh? American Idol, Bachelor, I mean, evil, evil stuff. Her new, her new favorite is something called The Voice, which, uh, don't encourage her. So, so here's what I've learned so far about, because I'm usually working, and she's watching this stuff, so I want you to know I, I do not approve at all of these choices, so I'm working during this time. But if, if, if she's watching like American Idol or The Voice or something, and someone is singing, here's what I've learned. In every instance, I think the person is awesome. The judges can't stand them. And in every instance, I think they've failed miserably. The judges love them. So... 
I have learned, because I'm tone deaf, and I sound great in the shower, but nowhere else. That is not empirically verifiable. You cannot know that for sure. But do you think I'm a great judge of vocal talent? No, not at all, not at all. So I wanna take that dumb example, multiply it by like infinity, and suggest the following. Who is the least objective person in a courtroom? The defendant. No one goes to the defendant and says, hey, what do you think you deserve here? No one goes to the defendant and says, hey, how bad do you really think this was? Nobody cares about what the defendant thinks because it's in the vested interest of the defendant to make the sin seem light. Similarly, can we just point out the double standard you and I have when it comes to a conversation about God's wrath? The least objective people in this conversation are those of us who are sinful beings who want to critique a perfect and holy God. It's in our vested interest to kind of tone him down and make us not seem so bad. Would you agree? And the irony is we love wrath as long as it's applied to bad people and not us. I mean, think about some of our movies. One of my favorite movies is Gladiator. Now that is television, brothers and sisters, right there. When the bad, the emperor, gets it at the end, don't we all just go, yes, he had it coming. Or have you ever seen the movie Taken? Okay, Taken, you might as well just call it Wrath. Because all it is is a dad who loses his daughter and then he goes and he just, there's wrath. And we love it. There's something primal in us that just, yes, bad people should get what's coming to them. The problem the Bible wrestles with is when it says that God is opposed to evil and we're evil. How do you work that out? And so let's just admit a bit of our hypocrisy in like condemning God for his wrath. Because it's in our vested interest to do so. Right? And, and, and I talk to people all the time, and I'm one of them, that, that has a temptation to believe that I'm more moral than God is. Right? I love everybody. God's intolerant. God is exclusive. God is this and this and this and this. And aren't we better? And so many of the objections to following Jesus these days aren't intellectual anymore, but they're moral. You're a worse person for following this Jesus. And so we just want to begin by saying, well, we have a bit of a double standard here, right? And when we talk about wrath, Mondo, fire up a blank slide. Wrath is active, passive, great handwriting, present, that is not print, and future. Now, quit it. When we talk about God's active wrath, what are examples from the Bible that you can think of immediately? Flood? Yes. What else? The Amalekites. That was all fancy. Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes. What else? The snakes. Yes. What else? How about Ananias and Sapphira? A New Testament. Jack, what do you got? Hurricanes. Now that's an interesting one because there are lots of people that say that anytime we have a natural disaster, that's God's judgment. Fascinating, Jesus himself didn't speculate when asked about a tower that fell on some people and some people that died at the hands of Pilate. He instead said, unless you too repent, you will perish. But those people were not more guilty 
than any of the other people. Fascinating, Jesus didn't engage in kind of the same speculation that some of us do, Jack. I like that question. Now, you have, you have instances where God used nature and other nations to discipline, punish, express wrath, absolutely. But the ones that we really are familiar with are the Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The flood, Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, they show up giving to the church and then bam, they fall over dead because they were lying about it. So we're familiar with active wrath. Passive wrath, though, we're not as familiar with. Go to the book of Romans, chapter 1. You guys hanging in there? Mmm. I'm marginally convinced. Romans, chapter 1, verse 18. I gotta go in 3, 2, 1. The wrath of God is what? Being revealed. Does that sound present tense to you? I mean, I'm no grammar person, grammarian, grammarician, clearly. That sounds present tense to me. And in Greek, it actually is that, that this is an ongoing revelation of God's wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed. Now, Paul goes into why, but I want you to notice how it's being revealed. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Go to verse 28. So God gave them over to a depraved mind. What is God's passive wrath? His active wrath is kind of when he zaps, evidently. His passive wrath is something that's present, and it's something that he builds into the fabric, the moral fabric of the universe. Namely, the fact that judgment isn't found like when she gets pregnant or you get caught or something like you think bad happens that interrupts the course of sin. His judgment is found precisely in those moments where he doesn't intervene and he gives you what you want. That's his judgment. Because what sin does Choices for sin just confirm more of it. So we gradually, I mean, that's what addiction is, right? It starts small, but then it suffers from the law of diminishing returns. And so it takes more of it to experience less of it. And pretty soon you find yourself wrapped around whatever it is. There is a principle to the universe. Reaping and sowing, you reap what you sow. Now, God's wrath is very, very, it is something he does actively, but it is also something built into the fabric of the universe. Notice it's present, but it's also future. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. I know this is so exciting. Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath in the future, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So there is a day coming, and Jesus talks about this all the time, where every careless word you've spoken will be put to the light, where everything that was done in darkness will be brought out into the light, and it's kind of like there's no hiding or pretending or lying anymore. Each of us stands before a holy God. Now, all of this talk of wrath kind of harkens us back to like early 20th century hellfire and brimstone And certainly, all of this can be abused in the way it's communicated. There's no question about it. 
It used to be that everybody knew about God's wrath and you had to convince them that God is love. Now it's just the reverse. Everybody knows that God is love. You actually have to convince them he hates sin. And isn't that us? I mean, people who love Jesus. I mean, we're, it's cool when he's turning over tables and driving out animals in the temple of a corrupt Israelite hierarchy, but we don't want him to do that with us. And so one of the things that the scriptures keep coming back to is the fact that God's unrelenting, uncompromising, and absolute opposition to evil means he has to make a way for us to be right with him. So when Paul says, we got the same two problems Israel did, we're enslaved to the powers and principalities of this world and to our own desires, and we sit under the wrath of God, fully and justly. That is all background to understand this. Go to Romans chapter 3. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Keep that verse up there. You see the phrase, sacrifice of atonement? It's helisterion. If you take helisterion in Greek and translate it back to Hebrew, you get kaporet, the atonement cover. In other words, Jesus was put forward as our atonement cover. We are rescued in the same way the Israelites were. And that all of those pictures in the Old Testament pointed to the reality that is this Jesus. In other words, Jesus has come to set us free from our own cravings and desires, to set us free from powers and principalities, and he's been put forward so that literally by faith in him, Wrath passes over us. That's the image they're given. He is the atonement cover. He's the place where God dwells. He's the place where purification happens for God's people. Like, it's not two different stories, an angry God and a loving God. He's been loving the whole time, and every time he makes a way for his people by faith to grab hold of him so that what has to happen passes over. Because I want to argue, brothers and sisters, that God's wrath is really good news. And you don't believe that. Because we don't see how wrath and love fit together. If somebody's wrathful, they're not loving. And we think if somebody's loving, they're not wrathful. But I want to convince you that's not true. Imagine, if you will, I've sat with parents who, after months of heartbreak, have had to kick their children out of their house because they, their children have been given over to such rebellion the, and they've tried everything they can think of that, that literally they cut their kids off of support. They cut their kids off of money. Do they do this because of love or in spite of love? 
You know, it's fascinating. It's, to my eyes, it seems like there are hundreds of people here. Does it feel like wrath to the kid? Absolutely it does. But do the parents do it in spite of love or because of love? Because of their love, they do this. A cancer researcher sees his spouse devoured by the very cancer he's working to cure. Does he not hate the cancer and do everything in his power to exterminate it? In spite of love or because of it? Would we not think it strange if a wife found out her husband was having an affair and there was no anger, no jealousy? It was just a, oh, okay, that's okay. Would we think it strange if somebody were to have that reaction? Yes, because if they were truly in love, what would they feel? Anger and jealousy and righteous indignation. I tell you the truth, wrath is proof of love. It's not opposed to it. And wrath is good news. Wrath is what promises that God will remake every nook and cranny of this world so that there is nothing left that will provoke sorrow or pain or disappointment. It is his wrath that promises to do this. His unending antagonism to evil ensures That there will be a world that will be called by the scriptures a new heaven and a new earth that will not have pain, suffering, or sorrow. And oddly enough, if God were not moved to anger because of human evil, we would think him immoral. Think about it. Fire up the long quote. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed. Three million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. He is wrathful because he is love. And I tell you what, when I was 20, I would hear about God's coming again, like the second coming of Jesus. And my prayer was, Jesus, don't come back until I get married and have sex. (laughs) Not the holiest of prayers. And don't tell me, brothers, (laughs) that some of you have not had similar conversations with Jesus. Now, 
the older I get, I used to feel the same way about God's wrath. It just seems so unworthy of him. But the older I get, and I can tell you about the 38-year-old friend I have withering away due to cancer. She's undergone two horrendous surgeries and now is suffering just the indignity and the withering away. I mean, it's brutal to watch. Or the family in our community that sat here one Sunday with a nine-month-old baby wiggling around in the womb, only to go into the hospital to prepare to deliver the child, and in the midst of delivery, the child dies with no explainable reason. I mean, shall I tell you about the woman I sat next to last night who lost her husband just within the last two weeks? I mean, the amount of sorrow and pain in this room would be staggering. So what do we say? Do we just cheer each other on with, well, there's a greater purpose? Maybe there is. But I hang on to the fact that it is the wrath of God against everything that corrupts his good world that ensures it won't always be this way. End of story. And that this Jesus was put forward so that those of us who see the slavery and see our deservedness of everything that follows from it would grab hold of this Jesus so that when this judgment comes, you and I sit with remade bodies in a remade world seeing our Lord face to face. So I tell you it's good news. A friend of mine, not a friend, I don't know why I keep calling him a friend. His name is Hans Peter. I wish he were my friend because he's an Austrian ski guide. And, and I heard him at a conference once. And, and he was telling a story about how they have this thing, this phenomenon. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called weather in Austria. And they have this, uh, this thing called lightning that happens sometimes, thunder. And, uh, and so what you would do is you were, if you would be up in the mountains, if a storm rolled in and there was lightning as a part of that storm, I mean, you were in real physical danger. So they built these lightning rods, these metal poles that would, they, they put it the, kind of the toppest places in these mountain ranges. And as kind of a, a nod to an old Christian worldview, they would be often in the shape of crosses. And he said, the best image he ever had of Jesus being put forward to turn aside the wrath of God was when he was kind of guiding a crew up into the mountains, a storm rolls in. They see one of these cross kind of a lightning rods in, in the distance and they would kind of run to it. And you don't sit there leaning up against it. Can I get an amen? I mean, you don't, you don't touch the thing. You just kind of, you kind of crouch next to it. And sure enough, a couple minutes go by, zap! And it was just, he said it was so loud. It was like the, the thunder was right on top of them. And the lightning was so blinding that the after image in their eyes was like of the cross glowing in this interesting sort of way. And he said there was this silent awe and, and wonder as people kind of crouched in the shadow of this thing. And they were just astounded at the power that had just been displayed and the fact that they were safe. And he just made the point, that is the image perhaps come, could come to mind when Paul says 
this Jesus was put forward as an atonement cover for those of us who kind of shelter next to him. That the wrath of God was poured out on him. And he didn't do it, you know, it wasn't like God the Father was mad and he's like, I gotta hit somebody. And Jesus said, hit me, not them, hit me, not them. That's, that's a horrific image of God. God himself took God's own ransom. God himself took the brunt of God's own wrath. So that literally those that kind of crouch in the shadow are passed over. Here's why this matters to you. Far too many of us live waiting for the other shoe to drop. We, we've accepted this Jesus, but we still feel like he's angry because we still sin. We still screw up. Some of us sin magnificently in the worst sense of the word. And we wait for wrath to come. Brothers and sisters, I have great news this morning. There's no wrath left over. That's why Paul will say there's no condemnation. None. None. We're... Imagine if you really believed that. And, you, and we didn't kind of walk around just sort of waiting. Now, God lets us experience the consequences of our sin, always. God disciplines us, it says in Hebrews. That's a different thing. Far too many of us live not in the reverent fear of the Lord, but we're just afraid of him. And this morning, for those of us that grab hold of this Jesus by faith, and we sit next to this cross, we just go, there's no wrath. There's no wrath left over. I mean, there's, like you don't have to crouch anymore. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says you enter boldly with confidence now. And so I don't know what kind of view of God that you have here this morning, but I want to invite us to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and have a view of him that recognizes his great holiness and his great love for you. That there is no condemnation, there's no wrath left over, that you now stand free, doing everything that you've done yesterday and in the past, and everything that you'll do today and tomorrow into the future, that every shred of that, when Jesus cried, it is finished, there is no sacrifice left to be made. There's no you having to promise to read the Bible every day to get him off your back. There's no promise to have to give money in order to be blessed. I mean, there's none of that negotiating left. You're free to serve him, to love him, to be used by him. And this is good news. And so we're going to open up the tables. There are tables in the back. This is not takeout. <laughs> so come back in. And I want to invite you, when we begin to sing, to take a cup, to take some of the bread. And then with the people that you're here with or with someone you're next to, would you just, whenever God would move it, would you take the bread and take the cup? For some of you, would you take communion this morning as an act of loving defiance against a culture that tells you that despair is perfectly appropriate? No, we are a people of hope. 
Some of us need to take the Lord's Supper this morning because our consciences condemn us. Maybe we've been given over, we've tasted a bit of that, and we sit before a holy God and just recognize our sin, and yes, we confess, and yes, we repent, but fundamentally, it's been paid for. There's no wrath left. Or maybe you're here and you're new to Jesus. There is no better opportunity to receive him that by taking this bread and this cup, which signify our acceptance of this gift that he's given to us. Like every Israelite family had to take blood and anoint their door frames. This is how we receive the sacrifice. So we have folks here, if we could pray for you, we'd be honored to do that. But I invite you to stand. We're going to sing, and I invite you to come down to the table this morning and to celebrate the goodness and kindness of our God.